When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is section 27 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Burlesque Biography Two or three persons having at different times intimated that if I would write an autobiography they would read it when they got leisure, I yield at last to this frenzied public demand, and herewith tender my history. Ours is a noble house, and stretches a long way back into antiquity. The earliest ancestor the Twains have any record of was a friend of the family by the name of Higgins. This was in the eleventh century, when our people were living in Aberdeen, county of Cork, England. Why it is that our long line has ever since borne the maternal name, except when one of them now and then took a playful refuge in an alias to avert foolishness, instead of Higgins, is a mystery which none of us has ever felt much desire to stir. It is a kind of vague, pretty romance, and we leave it alone. All the old families do it that way. Arthur Twain was a man of considerable note, a solicitor on the highway in William Rufus's time. At about the age of thirty he went to one of those fine old English places of resort called Newgate to see about something, and never returned again. While there he died suddenly. Augustus Twain seems to have made something of a stir about the year 1160. He was as full of fun as he could be, and used to take his old saber and sharpen it up, and get in a convenient place on a dark night, and stick it through people as they went by, to see them jump. He was a born humorist, but he got to going too far with it, and the first time he was found stripping one of these parties, the authorities removed one end of him, and put it up on a nice high place on Temple Bar, where it could contemplate the people and have a good time. He never liked any situation so much, or stuck to it so long. Then for the next two hundred years the family tree shows a succession of soldiers, noble, high-spirited fellows, who always went into battle singing, right behind the army, and always went out a-whooping, right ahead of it. This is a scathing rebuke to old dead Frozart's poor witticism that our family tree never had but one limb to it, and that that one stuck out at right angles, and bore fruit winter and summer. Early in the fifteenth century we had Beau Twain, called the Scholar. He wrote a beautiful, beautiful hand, and he could imitate anybody's hand so closely that it was enough to make a person laugh his head off to see it. He had infinite sport with his talent, but by and by he took a contract to break stone for a road, and the roughness of the work spoiled his hand. Still he enjoyed life all the time he was in the stone business, which, uh, with uh, inconsiderable intervals, was some forty-two years. In fact, he died in harness. During all those long years he gave such satisfaction that he never was through with one contract a week till the government gave him another. He was a perfect pet, and he was always a favorite with his fellow artists and was a conspicuous member of their benevolent secret society called the Chain Gang. He always wore his hair short, had a preference for striped clothes, 
and died lamented by the government. He was a sore loss to his country, for he was so regular. Some years later we have the illustrious John Morgan Twain. He came over to this country with Columbus in 1492 as a passenger. He appears to have been of a crusty, uncomfortable disposition. He complained of the food all the way over, and was always threatening to go ashore unless there was a change. He wanted fresh shad. Hardly a day passed over his head that he did not go idling about the ship with his nose in the air, sneering about the commander, and saying he did not believe Columbus knew where he was going to, or had ever been there before. The memorable cry of, Land Ho! thrilled every heart in the ship but his. He gazed a while through a piece of smoked glass at the penciled line and lying on the distant water, and then said, Land be hanged, it's a raft! When this questionable passenger came on board the ship, he brought nothing with him but an old newspaper containing a handkerchief marked B.G., one cotton sock marked L.W.C., one woolen one marked D.F., and a nightshirt marked O.M.R., and yet during the voyage he worried more about his trunk, and gave himself more airs about it, than all the rest of the passengers put together. If the ship was down by the head, and would not steer, he would go and move his trunk further aft, and then watch the effect. If the ship was by the stern, he would suggest to Columbus to detail some men to shift that baggage. In storms he had to be gagged, because his wailings about his trunk made it impossible for the men to hear the orders. The man does not appear to have been openly charged with any gravely unbecoming thing, but it is noted in the ship's log as a curious circumstance that albeit he brought his baggage on board the ship in a newspaper, he took it ashore in four trunks, a queensware crate, and a couple of champagne baskets. But when he came back insinuating in an insolent, swaggering way that some of his things were missing, and was going to search the other passengers' baggage, it was too much, and they threw him overboard. They watched long and wonderingly for him to come up, but not even a bubble rose on the quietly ebbing tide. But while everyone was most absorbed in gazing over the side, and the interest was momentarily increasing, it was observed with consternation that the vessel was adrift, and the anchor cable hanging limp from the bow. Then in the ship's dimmed and ancient log we find this quaint note. In time it was discovered, yet ye troublesome passenger had gone down, and got ye anchor, and took ye same, and sold it to ye damn sauvages from ye interior, saying it he had found it, it ye son of a gun. Yet this ancestor had good and noble instincts, and it is with pride that we call to mind the fact that he was the first white person who ever interested himself in the work of elevating and civilizing our Indians. He built a commodious jail, and put up a gallows, and to his dying day he claimed with satisfaction that he had had a more restraining and elevating influence on the Indians than any other reformer that ever labored among them. At this point the chronicle becomes less frank and chatty, and closes abruptly by saying that the old voyager went to see his gallows perform on the first white man ever hanged in America, and while there received injuries which terminated in his death. The great-grandson of the reformer flourished in sixteen hundred and something, and was known in our annals as 
the old admiral, though in history he had other titles. He was long in command of fleets of swift vessels, well-armed and manned, and did great service in hurrying up merchantmen. Vessels which he followed and kept his eagle eye on always made good fair time across the ocean. But if a ship still loitered in spite of all he could do, his indignation would grow till he could contain himself no longer, and then he would take that ship home where he lived, and keep it there carefully, expecting the owners to come for it. But they never did. And he would try to get the idleness and sloth out of the sailors of that ship by compelling them to take invigorating exercise and a bath. He called it walking a plank. All the pupils liked it. At any rate, they never found any fault with it after trying it. When the owners were late coming for their ships, the admiral always burnt them, so that the insurance money should not be lost. At last this fine old tar was cut down in the fullness of his years and honors, and to her dying day his poor heart-broken widow believed that if he had been cut down fifteen minutes sooner he might have been resuscitated. Charles Henry Twain lived during the latter part of the seventeenth century and was a zealous and distinguished missionary. He converted sixteen thousand South Sea Islanders and taught them that a dog-toothed necklace and a pair of spectacles was not enough clothing to come to divine service in. His poor flock loved him very, very dearly, and when his funeral was over they got up in a body and came out of the restaurant with tears in their eyes, and saying, one to another, that he was a good, tender missionary, and they wished they had some more of him. Pagotu Wawa Pukatekiwis mighty hunter with a hog-eye twain, adorned the middle of the eighteenth century and aided General Braddock with all his heart to resist the oppressor Washington. It was this ancestor who fired seventeen times at our Washington from behind a tree. So far the beautiful romantic narrative in the moral story-books is correct, but when that narrative goes on to say that at the seventeenth round the awe-stricken savage said solemnly, that that man was being reserved by the great spirit for some mighty mission, and he dared not lift his sacrilegious rifle against him again, the narrative seriously impairs the integrity of history. What he did say was, "'It ain't no no use. That man's so drunk he can't stand still long enough for a man to hit him. I, I can't afford to fool away any more ammunition on him.' That was why he stopped at the seventeenth round and it was a good, plain, matter-of-fact reason, too, and one that easily commends itself to us by the eloquent, persuasive flavor of probability there is about it. I always enjoyed the story-book narrative, but I felt a marring misgiving that every Indian at Braddock's defeat who fired at a soldier a couple of times, too easily grows to seventeen in a century, and missed him, jumped to the conclusion that the great spirit was reserving that soldier for some grand mission and so I somehow feared that the only reason why Washington's case is remembered and the others forgotten is that in his the prophecy came true, and in that of the others it didn't. There are not books enough on earth to contain the record of the prophecies Indians and other unauthorized parties have made, but one may carry in his overcoat pockets the record of all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. I will remark here, in passing, that certain ancestors of mine are so thoroughly well known in history by their aliases 
that I have not felt it to be worth while to dwell upon them, or even mention them in the order of their birth. Among these may be mentioned Richard Brinsley Twain, alias Guy Fawkes, John Wentworth Twain, alias Sixteen String Jack, William Hogarth Twain, alias Jack Shepherd, Ananias Twain, alias Baron Munchausen, John George Twain, alias Captain Kidd, and then there are George Francis Twain, Tom Pepper, Nebuchadnezzar, and Balin's Ass. They all belong to our family, but to a branch of it somewhat distinctly removed from the honorable direct line, in fact a collateral branch, whose members chiefly differ from the ancient stock, in that in order to acquire the notoriety we have always yearned and hungered for, they have got into a low way of going to jail instead of getting hanged. It is not well, when writing an autobiography, to follow your ancestry down too close to your own time. It is safest to speak only vaguely of your great-grandfather, and then skip from there to yourself, which I now do. I was born without teeth, and there Richard the Third had the advantage of me, but I was born without a humpback, likewise, and there I had the advantage of him. My parents were neither very poor nor conspicuously honest. But now a thought occurs to me. My own history would really seem so tame contrasted with that of my ancestors that it is simply wisdom to leave it unwritten until I am hanged. If some other biographies I have read had stopped with the ancestry until a like event occurred, it would have been a felicitous thing for the reading public. How does it strike you? End of section 27This is section 28 of The Thirty Thousand Dollar Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. How to Tell a Story The Humorous Story An American Development Its Difference from Comic and Witty Stories I do not claim that I can tell a story as it ought to be told. I only claim to know how a story ought to be told, for I have been almost daily in the company of the most expert storytellers for many years. There are several kinds of stories, but only one difficult kind, the humorous. I will talk mainly about that one. The humorous story is American, the comic story is English, the witty story is French. The humorous story depends for its effect upon the manner of the telling, the comic story, and the witty story, upon the matter. The humorous story may be spun out to great length, and may wander around as much as it pleases and arrive nowhere in particular, but the comic and witty stories must be brief and end with a point. The humorous story bubbles gently along, the others burst. The humorous story is strictly a work of art, high and delicate art, and only an artist can tell it. But no art is necessary in telling the comic and the witty story. Anybody can do it. The art of telling a humorous story—understand I mean by word of mouth, not print—was created in America and has remained at home. The humorous story is told gravely. The teller does his best to conceal the fact that he even dimly suspects that there is anything funny about it. But the teller of the comic story tells you beforehand that it is one of the funniest things he has ever heard, then tells it with eager delight, and is the first person to laugh 
when he gets through and sometimes if he has had good success he is so glad and happy that he will repeat the nub of it and glance around from face to face collecting applause and then repeat it again it is a pathetic thing to see very often of course the rambling and disjointed humorous story finishes with a nub point snapper or whatever you like to call it then the listener must be alert for in many cases the teller will divert attention from that nub by dropping it in a carefully casual and indifferent way with the pretense that he does not know it is a nub artemus ward used that trick a good deal then when the belated audience presently caught the joke he would look up with innocent surprise as if wondering what they had found to laugh at dan setchell used it before him nye and riley and others use it today but the teller of the comic story does not slur the nub he shouts it at you every time and when he prints it in england france germany and italy he italicizes it puts some whopping exclamation points after it and sometimes explains it in a parenthesis all of which is very depressing and makes one want to renounce joking and lead a better life let me set down an instance of the comic method using an anecdote which has been popular all over the world for twelve or fifteen hundred years the teller tells it in this way the wounded soldier in the course of a certain battle a soldier whose leg had been shot off appealed to another soldier who was hurrying by to carry him to the rear informing him at the same time of the loss which he had sustained whereupon the generous son of mars shouldering the unfortunate proceeded to carry out his desire the bullets and cannon-balls were flying in all directions and presently one of the latter took the wounded man's head off without however his deliverer being aware of it in no long time he was hailed by an officer who said where are you going with that carcass to the rear sir he's lost his leg his leg forsooth responded the astonished officer you mean his head you booby whereupon the soldier dispossessed himself of his burden and stood looking down upon it in great perplexity at length he said it is true sir just as you have said then after a pause he added but he told me it was his leg here the narrator bursts into explosion after explosion of thunderous horse laughter repeating that nub from time to time through his gasping and shriekings and suffocatings it takes only a minute and a half to tell that in its comic story form and it isn't worth the telling after all put into the humorous story form it takes ten minutes and is about the funniest thing i have ever listened to as james whitcomb riley tells it he tells it in the character of a dull-witted old farmer who has just heard it for the first time thinks it is unspeakably funny and is trying to repeat it to a neighbor but he can't remember it so he gets all mixed up and wanders helplessly round and round putting in tedious details that don't belong in the tale and only retard it taking them out conscientiously and putting in others that are just as useless making minor mistakes now and then and stopping to correct them and explain how he came to make them remembering things which he forgot to put in their proper place and going back to put them in there stopping his narrative a good while in order to try to recall the name of the soldier that was hurt and finally remembering that the soldier's name was not mentioned and remarking placidly that the name is of no real importance anyway 
and better of course if one knew it but not essential after all and so on and so on and so on the teller is innocent and happy and pleased with himself and has to stop every little while to hold himself in and keep from laughing outright and does hold in but his body quakes in a jelly-like way with interior chuckles and at the end of the ten minutes the audience have laughed until they are exhausted and the tears are running down their faces the simplicity and innocence and sincerity and unconsciousness of the old farmer are perfectly simulated and the result is a performance which is thoroughly charming and delicious this is art and fine and beautiful and only a master can compass it but a machine could tell the other story to string incongruities and absurdities together in a wandering and sometimes purposeless way and seem innocently unaware that they are absurdities is the basis of the american art if my position is correct another feature is the slurring of the point a third is the dropping of a studied remark apparently without knowing it as if one were thinking aloud the fourth and last is the pause artemus ward dealt in numbers three and four a good deal he would begin to tell with great animation something which he seemed to think was wonderful then lose confidence and after an apparently absent-minded pause add an incongruous remark in a soliloquizing way and that was the remark intended to explode the mine and it did for instance he would say eagerly excitedly i once knew a man in new zealand who hadn't a tooth in his head here his animation would die out a silent reflective pause would follow then he would say dreamily and as if to himself and yet that man could beat a drum better than any man i ever saw the pause is an exceedingly important feature in any kind of story and a frequently recurring feature too it is a dainty thing and delicate and also uncertain and treacherous for it must be exactly the right length no more and no less or it fails of its purpose and makes trouble if the pause is too short the impressive point is passed and the audience have had time to divine that a surprise is intended and then you can't surprise them of course on the platform i used to tell a negro ghost story that had a pause in front of the snapper on the end and that pause was the most important thing in the whole story if i got it the right length precisely i could spring the finishing ejaculation with effect enough to make some impressible girl deliver a startled little yelp and jump out of her seat and that was what i was after this story was called the golden arm and was told in this fashion you can practice it with it yourself and mind you look out for the pause and get it right the golden arm once upon a time there was a mom's mean man and he lived way out in the prairie all alone by self exceptin he had a wife and by and by she died and he took and toted her way out down the prairie and buried her wow she had a golden arm all solid gold from the shoulder down he was powerful mean powerful and that night he couldn't sleep cause he want that golden arm so bad when it come midnight he couldn't stand no more so he get up he did and took his lantern and shoved off through the storm and dug her up and got the golden arm and then he bent his head down and gin the wind 
and plowed and plowed and plowed through the snow. Then all on a sudden he stopped. Make a considerable pause here and look startled and take a listening attitude. And say, My land, what's that? And he listen and listen. And then, when say, set your teeth together and imitate the wailing and wheezing sing-song of the wind, and then way back yonder where the grave is, he hear a voice. He hear a voice all mix up in the wind. Can't hardly tell him apart. got my golden arm. You must begin to shiver violently now. And he begin to shiver and shake and say, Oh, my, oh, my land. And the wind blow the lantern out, and the snow and sleet blow in his face and most choke him. And he started plowing knee-deep toward home most dead. He's so scared. And pretty soon he heard the voice again. And pause. It is coming after him. Who got my golden arm? When you get to the pasture, he hear again, closer now, and a coming, a coming back, die in the dark in the storm. Repeat the wind and the voice. When he get to the house, he rush upstairs and jump into bed and kiver up, head and years, and lay there shivering and shaking. And then way out there he hear it again, and a coming, and blimey, he hear, pause, awed listening attitude, pat, 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 it's a coming up stars. Then he hear the latch, and he know it's in the room. Then pretty soon he knows it's a standing by the bed, pause, then. He knows it's a-bending down over him, and he can't scarcely get his breath. Then, then, he seemed to feel something cold right down most again his head. Pause. Then the voice say, right at his ear, who got? my golden arm you must wail it out very plaintively and accusingly then you stare steadily and impressively into the face of the farthest gone auditor a girl preferably and let that awe-inspiring pause begin to build itself in the deep hush when it has reached exactly the right length jump suddenly at the girl and yell you've got it if you've got the pause right, she'll fetch a dear little yelp and spring right out of her shoes. But you must get the pause right, and you will find it the most troublesome and aggravating and uncertain thing you ever undertook. End of section 28This is section 29 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. General Washington's Negro Body Servant A Biographical Sketch The stirring part of this celebrated colored man's life properly began with his death. That is to say, the notable features of his biography began with the first time he died. 
he had been little heard of up to that time but since then we have never ceased to hear of him we have never ceased to hear of him at stated unfailing intervals his was a most remarkable career and i have thought that its history would make a valuable addition to our biographical literature therefore i have carefully collated the materials for such a work from authentic sources and here present them to the public i have rigidly excluded from these pages everything of a doubtful character with the object in view of introducing my work into the schools for the instruction of the youth of my country the name of the famous body-servant of general washington was george after serving his illustrious master faithfully for half a century and enjoying throughout his long term his high regard and confidence it became his sorrowful duty at last to lay that beloved master to rest in his peaceful grave by the potomac ten years afterward in eighteen o nine full of years and honors he died himself mourned by all who knew him the boston gazette of that date thus refers to the event george the favorite body-servant of the lamented washington died in richmond virginia last tuesday at the ripe age of ninety-five years his intellect was unimpaired and his memory tenacious up to within a few minutes of his decease he was present at the second installation of washington as president and also at his funeral and distinctly remembered all the prominent incidents connected with those noted events from this period we hear no more of the favorite body-servant of general washington until may eighteen twenty five at which time he died again a philadelphia paper thus speaks of the sad occurrence at macon georgia last week a colored man named george who was the favorite body-servant of general washington died at the advanced age of ninety-five years up to within a few hours of his dissolution he was in full possession of all his faculties and could distinctly recollect the second installation of washington his death and burial the surrender of cornwallis the battle of trenton the griefs and hardships of valley forge etc deceased was followed to the grave by the entire population of macon on the fourth of july eighteen thirty and also of eighteen thirty four and thirty six the subject of this sketch was exhibited in great state upon the rostrum of the orator of the day and in november of eighteen forty he died again the st louis republican of the twenty-fifth of that month spoke as follows another relic of the revolution gone george once the favorite body-servant of general washington died yesterday at the house of mr john leavenworth in this city at the venerable age of ninety-five years he was in the full possession of his faculties up to the hour of his death and distinctly recollected the first and second installations and death of president washington the surrender of cornwallis the battles of trenton and monmouth the sufferings of the patriot army at valley forge the proclamation of the declaration of independence the speech of patrick henry in the virginia house of delegates and many other old-time reminiscences of stirring interest few white men die lamented as was this aged negro the funeral was very largely attended 
during the next ten or eleven years the subject of this sketch appeared at intervals at fourth of july celebrations in various parts of the country and was exhibited upon the rostrum with flattering success but in the fall of eighteen fifty five he died again the california papers thus speak of the event another old hero gone died at dutch flat on the seventh of march george once the confidential body-servant of general washington at the great age of ninety-five years his memory which did not fail him till the last was a wonderful storehouse of interesting reminiscences he could distinctly recollect the first and second installations and death of president washington the surrender of cornwallis the battles of trenton and monmouth and bunker hill the proclamation of the declaration of independence and braddock's defeat george was greatly respected in dutch flat and it is estimated that there were ten thousand people present at his funeral the last time the subject of this sketch died was in june eighteen sixty four and until we learn the contrary it is just to presume that he died permanently this time the michigan papers thus refer to the sorrowful event another cherished remnant of the revolution gone george a colored man and once the favorite body-servant of george washington died in detroit last week at the patriarchal age of ninety-five years to the moment of his death his intellect was unclouded and he could distinctly remember the first and second installations and death of washington the surrender of cornwallis the battles of trenton and monmouth and bunker hill the proclamation of the declaration of independence braddock's defeat the throwing over of the tea in boston harbor and the landing of the pilgrims he died greatly respected and was followed to the grave by a vast concourse of people the faithful old servant is gone we shall never see him more until he turns up again he has closed his long and splendid career of dissolution for the present and sleeps peacefully as only they sleep who have earned their rest he was in all respects a remarkable man he held his age better than any celebrity that has figured in history and the longer he lived the stronger and longer his memory grew if he lives to die again he will distinctly recollect the discovery of america the above resume of his biography i believe to be substantially correct although it is possible that he may have died once or twice in obscure places where the event failed of newspaper notoriety one fault i find in all notices of his death which i have quoted and this ought to be correct in them he uniformly and impartially died at the age of ninety-five this could not have been he might have done that once or maybe twice but he could not have continued it indefinitely allowing that when he first died he died at the age of ninety-five he was a hundred and fifty-one years old when he died last in eighteen sixty four but his age did not keep pace with his recollections when he died the last time he distinctly remembered the landing of the pilgrims which took place in sixteen twenty he must have been about twenty years old when he witnessed that event wherefore it is safe to assert that the body-servant of general washington was in the neighborhood of two hundred and sixty or seventy years old when he departed this life finally having waited a proper length of time to see if the subject of his sketch had gone from us reliably and irrevocably 
i now publish his biography with confidence and respectfully offer it to a mourning nation p s i see by the papers that this infamous old fraud has just died again in arkansas this makes six times that he is known to have died and always in a new place the death of washington's body servant has ceased to be a novelty its charm is gone the people are tired of it let it cease this well-meaning but misguided negro has now put six different communities to the expense of burying him in state and has swindled tens of thousands of people into following him to the grave under the delusion that a select and peculiar distinction was being conferred upon them let him stay buried for good now and let that newspaper suffer the severest censure that shall ever in all future time publish to the world that general washington's favorite colored body servant has died again end of section twenty nine This is section 30 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. With Inspirations of the Two-Year-Olds All infants appear to have an impertinent and disagreeable fashion nowadays of saying smart things on most occasions that offer, and especially on occasions when they ought not to be saying anything at all. Judging by the average published specimens of smart sayings, the rising generation of children are little better than idiots, and the parents must surely be but little better than the children, for in most cases they are the publishers of the sunbursts of infantile imbecility which dazzle us from the pages of our periodicals. I may seem to speak with some heat, not to say a suspicion of personal spite, and I do admit that it nettles me to hear about so many gifted infants in these days, and remember that I seldom said anything smart when I was a child. I tried it once or twice, but it was not popular. The family were not expecting brilliant remarks from me, and so they snubbed me sometimes and spanked me the rest. But it makes my flesh creep and my blood run cold to think what might have happened to me if I had dared to utter some of the smart things of this generation's four-year-olds where my father could hear me. To have simply skinned me alive and considered his duty at an end would have seemed to him criminal leniency toward one so sinning. He was a stern, unsmiling man, and hated all forms of precocity. If I had said some of the things I have referred to, and said them in his hearing, he would have destroyed me. He would indeed. He would, provided the opportunity remained with him, but it would not, for I would have had judgment enough to take some strychnine first, and say my smart thing afterward. The fair record of my life has been tarnished by just one pun. My father overheard that, and he hunted me over four or five townships seeking to take my life. If I had been full-grown, of course he would have been right, but, child as I was, I could not know how wicked a thing I had done. I made one of those remarks ordinarily called smart things before that, but it was not a pun. Still it came near causing a serious rupture between my father and myself. My father and mother, my uncle Ephraim, and his wife, and one or two others were present, and the conversation turned on a name for me. I was lying there trying some india-rubber rings of various patterns, and endeavoring to make a selection, 
for I was tired of trying to cut my teeth on people's fingers, and wanted to get hold of something that would enable me to hurry the thing through and get something else. Did you ever notice what a nuisance it was cutting your teeth on your nurse's finger, or how back-breaking and tiresome it was trying to cut them on your big toe? And did you never get out of patience and wish your teeth were in Jericho long before you got them half-cut? To me it seemed as if these things happened yesterday, and they did, to some children. But uh, I digress. I was lying there trying the india-rubber rings. I remember looking at the clock and noticing that in an hour and twenty-five minutes I would be two weeks old, and thinking how little I had done to merit the blessings that were so unsparingly lavished upon me. My father said, "'Abraham is a good name. My grandfather was named Abraham.' My mother said, "'Abraham is a good name. Very well. Let us have Abraham for one of his names.' I said, "'Abraham suits the subscriber.' My father frowned, my mother looked pleased, my aunt said, "'What a little darling it is!' My father said, "'Isaac is a good name, and Jacob is a good name.' My mother assented, and said, "'No names are better. Let us add Isaac and Jacob to his names.' I said, "'All right. Isaac and Jacob are good enough for yours truly. Pass me that rattle, if you please. I can't chew india-rubber rings all day.' Not a soul made a memorandum of these sayings of mine for publication. I saw that, and did it myself, else they would have been utterly lost. So far from meeting with a generous encouragement like other children when developing intellectually, I was now furiously scowled upon by my father. My mother looked grieved and anxious, and even my aunt had about her an expression of seeming to think that maybe I had gone too far. I took a vicious bite out of an india-rubber ring, and covertly broke the rattle over the kitten's head, but said nothing. Presently my father said, "'Samuel is a very excellent name.' I saw that trouble was coming. Nothing could prevent it. I laid down my rattle. Over the side of the cradle I dropped my uncle's silver watch, the clothes-brush, the toy dog, my tin soldier, the nutmeg grater, and other matters which I was accustomed to examine, and meditate upon and make pleasant noises with, and bang and batter and break when I needed wholesome entertainment. Then I put on my little frock and my little bonnet, and took my pygmy shoes in one hand and my licorice in the other, and climbed out on the floor. I said to myself, Now, if the worst comes to worst, I am ready. Then I said aloud in a firm voice, Father, I cannot, cannot wear the name of Samuel. My son! Father, I mean it, I cannot. Why? Father, I have an invincible antipathy to that name. My son, this is unreasonable. Many great and good men have been named Samuel. Sir, I have yet to hear of the first instance. What? There was Samuel the prophet. Was not he great and good? Not so very. My son, with his own voice the Lord called him. Yes, sir, and had to call him a couple of times before he could come. And then I sallied forth, and that stern old man sallied forth after me. He overtook me at noon the following day, and when the interview was over I had acquired the name of Samuel, and a thrashing, and other useful information. And by means of this compromise my father's wrath was appeased, and a misunderstanding bridged over, which might have become a permanent rupture if I had chosen to be unreasonable. But just judging by this episode, 
what would my father have done to me if i had ever uttered in his hearing one of the flat sickly things these two-year-olds say in print nowadays in my opinion there would have been a case of infanticide in our family end of section thirty This is section 31 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An Entertaining Article I take the following paragraph from an article in the Boston Advertiser. An English Critic on Mark Twain Perhaps the most successful flights of humor of Mark Twain have been descriptions of the persons who did not appreciate his humor at all. We have become familiar with the Californians who were thrilled with terror by his burlesque of a newspaper reporter's way of telling a story, and we have heard of the Pennsylvania clergyman who sadly returned his innocence abroad to the book agent with the remark that the man who could shed tears over the tomb of Adam must be an idiot but mark twain may now add a much more glorious instance to his string of trophies the saturday review in its number of october eighth reviews his book of travels which has been republished in england and reviews it seriously we can imagine the delight of the humorist in reading this tribute to his power and indeed it is so amusing in itself that he can hardly do better than reproduce the article in full in his next monthly memoranda publishing the above paragraph thus gives me a sort of authority for reproducing the saturday review's article in full in these pages i dearly wanted to do it for i cannot write anything half so delicious myself if i had a cast-iron dog that could read this english criticism and preserve his austerity i would drive him off the doorstep from the london saturday review reviews of new books the Innocents Abroad, A Book of Travels, by Mark Twain, London, Houghton Publisher, 1870. Lord Macaulay died too soon. We never felt this so deeply as when we finished the last chapter of the above-named extravagant work. Macaulay died too soon, for none but he could mete out complete and comprehensive justice to the insolence, the impertinence, the presumption, the mendacity, and, above all, the majestic ignorance of this author. To say that The Innocents Abroad is a curious book would be to use the faintest language, would be to speak of the Matterhorn as a neat elevation, or of Niagara as being nice or pretty. Curious is too tame a word wherewith to describe the imposing insanity of this work. There is no word that is large enough or long enough let us therefore photograph a passing glimpse of book and author and trust the rest to the reader let the cultivated english student of human nature picture to himself this mark twain as a person capable of doing the following described things and not only doing them but with incredible innocence printing them calmly and tranquilly in a book for instance he states that he entered a hairdresser's in paris to get shaved and the first rake the barber gave him with his razor, it loosened his hide, and lifted him out of the chair. This is unquestionably exaggerated. 
in florence he was so annoyed by beggars that he pretends to have seized and eaten one in a frantic spirit of revenge there is of course no truth in this he gives at full length a theatrical program seventeen or eighteen hundred years old which he professes to have found in the ruins of the Colosseum, among the dirt and mold and rubbish. It is a sufficient comment upon this statement to remark that even a cast-iron program would not have lasted so long under such circumstances. In Greece he plainly betrays both fright and flight upon one occasion, but with frozen effrontery puts the latter in this falsely tamed form. We sidled toward the Piraeus sidled indeed he does not hesitate to intimate that at ephesus when his mules strayed from the proper course he got down took him under his arm carried him to the road again pointed him right remounted and went to sleep contentedly till it was time to restore the beast to the path once more he states that a growing youth among his ship's passengers was in the constant habit of appeasing his hunger with soap and oakum between meals in palestine he tells of ants that came eleven miles to spend the summer in the desert and brought their provisions with them yet he shows by his description of the country that the feat was an impossibility he mentions as if it were the most commonplace of matters that he cut a muslim in two in broad daylight in jerusalem with godfrey de bouillon's sword and would have shed more blood if he had had a graveyard of his own these statements are unworthy a moment's attention. Mr. Twain, or any other foreigner who did such a thing in Jerusalem, would be mobbed, and would infallibly lose his life. But why go on? Why repeat more of his audacious and exasperating falsehoods? Let us close fittingly with this one. He affirms that, in the mosque of St. Sophia at Constantinople, I got my feet so stuck up with a complication of gums, slime, and general impurity, that I wore out more than two thousand pair of boot-jacks getting my boots off that night, and even then some Christian hide peeled off with them. It is monstrous. Such statements are simply lies. There is no other name for them. Will the reader longer marvel at the brutal ignorance that pervades the American nation when we tell him that we are informed upon perfectly good authority that this extravagant compilation of falsehoods, this exhaustless mine of stupendous lies, this innocence abroad, has actually been adopted by the schools and colleges of several of the states as a textbook? But if his falsehoods are distressing, his innocence and his ignorance are enough to make one burn the book and despise the author. In one place he was so appalled at the sudden spectacle of a murdered man, unveiled by the moonlight, that he jumped out of the window, going through sash and all, and then remarks with the most childlike simplicity that he was not scared, but was considerably agitated. It puts us out of patience to note that the simpleton is densely unconscious that Lucretia Borgia ever existed off the stage. He is vulgarly ignorant of all foreign languages, but is frank enough to criticize the Italians' use of their own tongue. He says they spell the name of their great painter Vinci, but pronounce it Vinci, and then adds with a naivete possible only to helpless ignorance foreigners always spell better than they pronounce 
in another place he commits the bald absurdity of putting the phrase tare an auns into an italian's mouth in rome he unhesitatingly believes the legend that st philip neri's heart was so inflamed with divine love that it burst his ribs believes it wholly because an author with a learned list of university degrees strung after his name endorses it otherwise says this gentle idiot i should have felt a curiosity to know what philip had for dinner our author makes a long fatiguing journey to the grotto del cane on purpose to test his poisoning powers on a dog got elaborately ready for the experiment and then discovered that he had no dog a wiser person would have kept such a thing discreetly to himself but with this harmless creature everything comes out he hurts his foot in a rut two thousand years old in exhumed pompeii and presently when staring at one of the cinder-like corpses unearthed in the next square conceives the idea that maybe it is the remains of the ancient street commissioner and straightway his horror softens down to a sort of chirpy contentment with the condition of things in damascus he visits the well of ananias three thousand years old and is as surprised and delighted as a child to find that the water is as pure and fresh as if the well had been dug yesterday in the holy land he gags desperately at the hard arabic and hebrew biblical names and finally concludes to call them baldwinsville williamsburg and so on for convenience of spelling we have thus spoken freely of this man's stupefying simplicity and innocence but we cannot deal similarly with his colossal ignorance we do not know where to begin and if we knew where to begin we certainly would not know where to leave off we will give one specimen and one only he did not know until he got to rome that michael angelo was dead and then instead of crawling away and hiding his shameful ignorance somewhere he proceeds to express a pious grateful sort of satisfaction that he is gone and out of his troubles no the reader may seek out the author's exhibition of his uncultivation for himself the book is absolutely dangerous considering the magnitude and variety of its misstatements and the convincing confidence with which they are made and yet it is a textbook in the schools of america the poor blunderer mouses among the sublime creations of the old masters trying to acquire the elegant proficiency in art knowledge which he has a groping sort of comprehension is a proper thing for a travelled man to be able to display but what is the manner of his study and what is the progress he achieves to what extent does he familiarize himself with the great pictures of italy and what degree of appreciation does he arrive at read when we see a monk going about with a lion and looking up into heaven we know that that is saint mark when we see a monk with a book and a pen looking tranquilly up to heaven trying to think of a word we know that that is st matthew when we see a monk sitting on a rock looking tranquilly up to heaven with a human skull beside him and without other baggage we know that that is st jerome because we know that he always went flying light in the matter of baggage when we see other monks looking tranquilly up to heaven but having no trademark we always ask who those parties are we do this because we humbly wish to learn 
he then enumerates the thousands and thousands of copies of these several pictures which he has seen and adds with accustomed simplicity that he feels encouraged to believe that when he has seen some more of each and had a larger experience he will eventually begin to take an absorbing interest in them the vulgar boor that we have shown this to be a remarkable book we think no one will deny that it is a pernicious book to place in the hands of the confiding and uninformed we think we have also shown that the book is a deliberate and wicked creation of a diseased mind is apparent upon every page having placed our judgment thus upon record let us close with what charity we can by remarking that even in this volume there is some good to be found for whenever the author talks of his own country and lets europe alone he never fails to make himself interesting and not only interesting but instructive no one can read without benefit his occasional chapters and paragraphs about life in the gold and silver mines of california and nevada about the indians of the plains and deserts of the west and their cannibalism about the raising of vegetables in kegs of gunpowder by the aid of two or three teaspoons of guano about the moving of small farms from place to place at night in wheelbarrows to avoid taxes and about a sort of cows and mules in the humboldt mines that climb down chimneys and disturb the people at night these matters are not only new but are well worth knowing it is a pity the author did not put in more of the same kind his book is well written and is exceedingly entertaining and so it just barely escaped being quite valuable also one month later latterly i have received several letters and see a number of newspaper paragraphs all upon a certain subject and all of about the same tenor i here give honest specimens one is from a new york paper one is from a letter from an old friend and one is from a letter from a new york publisher who is a stranger to me i humbly endeavor to make these bits toothsome with the remark that the article they are praising which appeared in the december galaxy and pretended to be a criticism from the london saturday review on my innocence abroad was written by myself every line of it the herald says the richest thing out is the serious critique in the london saturday review on mark twain's innocence abroad we thought before we read it that it must be serious as everybody said so and were even ready to shed a few tears but since perusing it we are bound to confess that next to mark twain's jumping frog it's the best bit of humor and sarcasm that we've come across in many a day i do not get a compliment like that every day i used to think that your writings were pretty good but after reading the criticism in the galaxy from the london review have discovered what an ass i must have been if suggestions are in order mine is that you put that article in your next edition of the innocents as an extra chapter if you are not afraid to put your own humor in competition with it it is as rich a thing as i ever read which is strong commendation from a book publisher the london reviewer my friend is not the stupid serious creature he pretends to be i think but on the contrary has a keen appreciation and enjoyment of your book as i read his article in the galaxy 
i could imagine him giving vent to many a hearty laugh but he is writing for catholics and established church people and high-toned antiquated conservative gentility whom it is a delight to him to help you shock while he pretends to shake his head with owlish density he is a magnificent humorist himself now that is graceful and handsome i take off my hat to my lifelong friend and comrade and with my feet together and my fingers spread over my heart i say in the language of alabama you do me proud i stand guilty of the authorship of the article but i did not mean any harm i saw by an item in the boston advertiser that a solemn serious critique on the english edition of my book had appeared in the london saturday review and the idea of such a literary breakfast by a stolid ponderous british ogre of the quill was too much for a naturally weak virtue and i went home and burlesqued it reveled in it i may say i never saw a copy of the real saturday review criticism until after my burlesque was written and mailed to the printer but when i did get hold of a copy i found it to be vulgar awkwardly written ill-natured and entirely serious and in earnest the gentleman who wrote the newspaper paragraph above quoted had not been misled as to its character if any man doubts my word now i will kill him no i will not kill him i will win his money i will bet him twenty to one and let any new york publisher hold the stakes that the statements i have above made as to the authorship of the article in question are entirely true perhaps i may get wealthy at this for i am willing to take all the bets that offer and if a man wants larger odds i will give him all he requires but he ought to find out whether i am betting on what is termed a sure thing or not before he ventures his money and he can do that by going to a public library and examining the london saturday review of october eighth which contains the real article bless me some people thought that i was the sold person p s I cannot resist the temptation to toss in this most savory thing of all, this easy, graceful, philosophical disquisition, with his happy, chirping confidence. It is from the Cincinnati Enquirer. Nothing is more uncertain than the value of a fine cigar. Nine smokers out of ten would prefer an ordinary domestic article, three for a quarter, to a fifty-cent partaga, if kept in ignorance of the cost of the latter. The flavor of the partaga is too delicate for palates that have been accustomed to Connecticut seed-leaf. So it is with humor. The finer it is in quality, the more danger of its not being recognized at all. Even Mark Twain has been taken in by an English review of his Innocence Abroad. Mark Twain is by no means a coarse humorist, but the Englishman's humor is so much finer than his that he mistakes it for solid earnest, and laughs most consumedly. A man who cannot learn stands in his own light. Hereafter, when I write an article which I know to be good, but which I may have reason to fear will not in some quarters be considered to amount to much, coming from an American, I will aver that an Englishman wrote it, and that it is copied from a London journal." and then i will occupy a back seat and enjoy the cordial applause still later mark twain at last sees that the saturday review's criticism of his innocence abroad was not serious and he is intensely mortified at the thought of having been so badly sold 
he takes the only course left him and in the last galaxy claims that he wrote the criticism himself and published it in the galaxy to sell the public this is ingenious but unfortunately it is not true if any of our readers will take the trouble to call at this office we will show them the original article in the saturday review of october eighth which on comparison will be found to be identical with the one published in the galaxy the best thing for mark to do will be to admit that he was sold and say no more about it the above is from the cincinnati inquirer and is a falsehood come to the proof if the inquirer people through any agent will produce at the galaxy office a london saturday review of october eighth containing an article which on comparison will be found to be identical with the one published in the galaxy i will pay to that agent five hundred dollars cash moreover if at any specified time i fail to produce at the same place a copy of the london saturday review of october eighth containing a lengthy criticism upon the innocents abroad entirely different in every paragraph and sentence from the one i published in the galaxy i will pay to the inquirer agent another five hundred dollars cash i offer sheldon and company publishers five hundred broadway new york as my backers any one in new york authorized by the inquirer will receive prompt attention it is an easy and profitable way for the inquirer people to prove that they have not uttered a pitiful deliberate falsehood in the above paragraphs will they swallow that falsehood ignominiously or will they send an agent to the galaxy office i think the cincinnati inquirer must be edited by children end of section thirty one This is section 32 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Letter to the Secretary of the Treasury. Riverdale on the Hudson, October 15, 1902. The Honorable, the Secretary of the Treasury, Washington, D.C. Sir, prices for the customary kinds of winter fuel having reached an altitude which puts them out of the reach of literary persons in straitened circumstances i desire to place with you the following order forty-five tons best old dry government bonds suitable for furnace gold seven per cent eighteen sixty four preferred twelve tons early greenbacks range size suitable for cooking eight barrels seasoned twenty-five and fifty-cent postal currency vintage of eighteen sixty six eligible for kindlings please deliver with all convenient dispatch at my house in riverdale at lowest rates for spot cash and send bill to your obliged servant mark twain who will be very grateful and will vote right amended obituaries to the editor sir i am approaching seventy it is in sight it is only three years away necessarily i must go soon it is but matter of course wisdom then that i should begin to set my worldly house in order now so that it may be done calmly and with thoroughness in place of waiting until the last day when as we have often seen the attempt to set both houses in order at the same time has been marred by the necessity for haste 
and by the confusion and waste of time arising from the inability of the notary and the ecclesiastic to work together harmoniously taking turn about and giving each other friendly assistance not perhaps in fielding which could hardly be expected but at least in the minor offices of keeping game and umpiring by consequence of which conflict of interests and absence of harmonious action a draw has frequently resulted where this ill fortune could not have happened if the houses had been set in order one at a time and hurry avoided by beginning in season and giving to each the amount of time fairly and justly proper to it in setting my earthly house in order i find it of moment that i should attend in person to one or two matters which men in my position have long had the habit of leaving wholly to others with consequences often most regrettable i wish to speak of only one of these matters at this time obituaries of necessity an obituary is a thing which cannot be so judiciously edited by any hand as by that of the subject of it in such a work it is not the facts that are of chief importance but the light which the obituarist shall throw upon them the meaning which he shall dress them in the conclusions which he shall draw from them and the judgments which he shall deliver upon them the verdicts you understand that is the danger line in considering this matter in view of my approaching change it has seemed to me wise to take such measures as may be feasible to acquire by courtesy of the press access to my standing obituaries with the privilege if this is not asking too much of editing not their facts but their verdicts this not for the present profit further than as concerns my family but as a favorable influence usable on the other side where there are some who are not friendly to me with this explanation of my motives i will now ask you of your courtesy to make an appeal for me to the public press it is my desire that such journals and periodicals as have obituaries of me lying in their pigeonholes with a view to sudden use some day will not wait longer but will publish them now and kindly send me a marked copy my address is simply new york city i have no other that is permanent and not transient i will correct them not the facts but the verdicts striking out such clauses as could have a deleterious influence on the other side and replacing them with clauses of a more judicious character i should of course expect to pay double rates for both the omissions and the substitutions and i should also expect to pay quadruple rates for all obituaries which proved to be rightly and wisely worded in the originals thus requiring no emendations at all it is my desire to leave these amended obituaries neatly bound behind me as a perennial consolation and entertainment to my family and as an heirloom which shall have a mournful but definite commercial value for my remote posterity i beg sir that you will insert this advertisement one t e o w agate inside and send the bill to yours very respectfully mark twain p s for the best obituary one suitable for me to read in public and calculated to inspire regret i desire to offer a prize consisting of a portrait of me done entirely by myself in pen and ink without previous instructions the ink warranted to be the kind used by the very best artists 
End of section 32. This is section 33 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Monument to Adam Someone has revealed to the Tribune that I once suggested to Rev. Thomas K. Beecher of Elmira, New York, that we get up a monument to Adam, and that Mr. Beecher favored the project. There is more to it than that. The matter started as a joke, but it came somewhat near to materializing. It is long ago, thirty years. Mr. Darwin's Descent of Man had been in print five or six years and the storm of indignation raised by it was still raging in pulpits and periodicals. In tracing the genesis of the human race back to its sources, Mr. Darwin had left Adam out altogether. We had monkeys, and missing links, and plenty of other kinds of ancestors, but no Adam. Jesting with Mr. Beecher and other friends in Elmira, I said there seemed to be a likelihood that the world would discard Adam and accept the monkey, and that in the course of time Adam's very name would be forgotten in the earth. Therefore this calamity ought to be averted. A monument would accomplish this, and Elmira ought not to waste this honorable opportunity to do Adam a favor and herself a credit. Then the unexpected happened. Two bankers came forward and took hold of the matter, not for fun, not for sentiment, but because they saw in the monument certain commercial advantages for the town. The project had seemed gently humorous before. It was more than that now, with this stern business gravity injected into it. The bankers discussed the monument with me. We met several times. They proposed an indestructible memorial to cost twenty-five thousand dollars. The insane oddity of a monument set up in a village to preserve a name that would outlast the hills and the rocks without any such help, would advertise Elmira to the ends of the earth, and draw custom. It would be the only monument on the planet to Adam, and in the matter of interest and impressiveness could never have a rival until somebody should set up a monument to the Milky Way. People would come from every corner of the globe and stop off to look at it, no tour of the world would be complete that left out Adam's monument. Elmira would be a Mecca. There would be pilgrim ships at pilgrim rates, pilgrim specials on the continent's railways. Libraries would be written about the monument. Every tourist would Kodak it. Models of it would be for sale everywhere in the earth. Its form would become as familiar as the figure of Napoleon. One of the bankers subscribed five thousand dollars, and I think the other one subscribed half as much, but I do not remember with certainty now whether that was the figure or not. We got designs made. Some of them came from Paris. In the beginning, as a detail of the project, when it was yet a joke, I had framed a humble and beseeching and perfervid petition to Congress, begging the government to build the monument, as a testimony of the great republic's gratitude to the father of the human race, and as a token of her loyalty to him in this dark day of his humiliation when his older children were doubting him and deserting him it seemed to me that this petition ought to be presented now it would be widely and feelingly abused and ridiculed and cursed and would advertise our scheme and make our ground-floor stock go off briskly so i sent it to general joseph r hawley who was then in the house and he said he would present it 
but he did not do it. I think he explained that when he came to read it he was afraid of it. It was too serious, too gushy, too sentimental. The house might take it for earnest. We ought to have carried out our monument scheme. We could have managed it without any great difficulty, and Elmira would now be the most celebrated town in the universe. Very recently I began to build a book in which one of the minor characters touches incidentally upon a project for a monument to Adam, and now the Tribune has come upon a trace of the forgotten jest of thirty years ago. Apparently mental telegraphy is still in business. It is odd, but the freaks of mental telegraphy are usually odd. A Humane Word from Satan the following letter, signed by Satan, and purporting to come from him, we have reason to believe, was not written by him, but by Mark Twain. Editor. To the Editor of Harper's Weekly. Dear Sir and Kinsman, Let us have done with this frivolous talk. The American Board accepts contributions from me every year. Then why shouldn't it from Mr. Rockefeller? In all the ages three-fourths of the support of the great charities has been conscience money, as my books will show. Then what becomes of the sting when that term is applied to Mr. Rockefeller's gift? The American board's trade is financed mainly from the graveyards. Bequests, you understand. Conscience money. Confession of an old crime and deliberate perpetration of a new one, for deceased contribution, is a robbery of his heirs. Shall the board decline bequests because they stand for one of these offenses every time and generally for both? Allow me to continue. The charge most persistently and resentfully and remorselessly dwelt upon is that Mr. Rockefeller's contribution is incurably tainted by perjury, perjury proved against him in the courts. It makes us smile down in my place because there isn't a rich man in your vast city who doesn't perjure himself every year before the tax board. They are all caked with perjury, many layers thick, ironclad, so to speak. If there is one that isn't, I desire to acquire him for my museum, and will pay dinosaur rates. Will you say it isn't infraction of the law, but only annual evasion of it? Comfort yourselves with that nice distinction, if you like, for the present. But by and by, when you arrive, I will show you something interesting, a whole hell full of evaders. Sometimes a frank lawbreaker turns up elsewhere, but I get those others every time. To return to my muttons, I wish you to remember that my rich perjurers are contributing to the American board with frequency. It is money filched from the sworn-off personal tax. Therefore, it is the wages of sin. Therefore, it is my money. Therefore, it is I that contributed. And finally, it is therefore, as I have said, since the board daily accepts contributions from me, why should it decline them from Mr. Rockefeller, who is as good as I am, let the courts say what they may? Satan. End of section 33. This is section 34 of the $30,000 Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
Introduction to the New Guide of the Conversation in Portuguese and English by Pedro Carolino. In this world of uncertainties, there is, at any rate, one thing which may be pretty confidently set down as a certainty, and that is that this celebrated little phrase book will never die while the English language lasts. Its delicious, unconscious ridiculousness and its enchanting naivete are as supreme and unapproachable in their way as are Shakespeare's sublimities. Whatsoever is perfect in its kind, in literature, is imperishable. Nobody can add to the absurdity of this book. Nobody can imitate it successfully. Nobody can hope to produce its fellow. It is perfect. It must and will stand alone. Its immortality is secure. It is one of the smallest books in the world, but few big books have received such wide attention, and been so much pondered by the grave and learned, and so much discussed and written about by the thoughtful, the thoughtless, the wise, and the foolish. Long notices of it have appeared, from time to time, in the great English reviews, and in erudite and authoritative philological periodicals and it has been laughed at, danced upon, and tossed in a blanket by nearly every newspaper and magazine in the English-speaking world. Every scribbler, almost, has had his little fling at it, at one time or another. I had mine fifteen years ago. The book gets out of print every now and then, and one ceases to hear of it for a season, but presently the nations and near and far colonies of our tongue and lineage call for it once more, and once more it issues from some London or Continental or American press, and runs a new course around the globe, wafted on its way by the wind of a world's laughter. Many persons have believed that this book's miraculous stupidities were studied and disingenuous, but no one can read the volume carefully through and keep that opinion. It was written in serious good faith and deep earnestness, by an honest and upright idiot who believed he knew something of the English language, and could impart his knowledge to others. The amplest proof of this crops out somewhere or other upon each and every page. There are sentences in the book which could have been manufactured by a man in his right mind, and with an intelligent and deliberate purpose to seem innocently ignorant, but there are other sentences and paragraphs which no mere pretended ignorance could ever achieve, nor yet even the most genuine and comprehensive ignorance, when unbacked by inspiration. It is not a fraud who speaks in the following paragraph of the author's preface, but a good man, an honest man, a man whose conscience is at rest, a man who believes he has done a high and worthy work for his nation and his generation and is well pleased with his performance we expect then who the little book for the care what we wrote him and for her typographical correction that may be worth the acceptation of the studious persons and especially of the youth at which we dedicate him particularly one cannot open this book anywhere and not find richness to prove that this is true I will open it at random, and copy the page I happen to stumble upon. Here is the result. Dialogue 16. For to see the town. Anathoni, go to accompany they gentlesmen, do they see the town. We want to see all that is it. Remarkable here. Come with me, if you please. 
i shall not fall get nothing what can to merit your attention here we are near to cathedral will you come in there we will first to see him in outside after we shall go in there for to look the interior admire this masterpiece gothic architectures the chasing of all they figures is astonishing indeed the cupola and the nave are not less curious to see what is this palace how i see yonder it is the town hall and this tower here at this side it is the observatory the bridge is very fine it have ten arches and is constructed of free stone the streets are very laid out by line and two paved what is the circuit of this town two leagues there is it also hospitals here it not fail them what are then the edifices the worthest to have seen it is the arson hall the spectacles hall the cushion house and the purse we are going to see the others monuments such that the public pawnbroker's office the plants gardens the money offices the library that it shall be for another day we are tired dialogue seventeen to inform oneself of a person how is that gentleman who did speak by and by is a german i did think him englishman he is of the saxony side he speak the french very well tough he is german he speaks so much well italian french spanish and english that among the italians they believe him italian he speak the frencher as the frenches themselves the spanishes men believe him spanishing and the englishes englishmen it is difficult to enjoy well so much several languages the last remark contains a general truth but it ceases to be a truth when one contracts it and applies it to an individual provided that that individual is the author of this book senor pedro carolino i am sure i should not find it difficult to enjoy well so much several languages or even a thousand of them if he did the translating for me from the originals into his ostensible english end of section thirty four this is section thirty five of the thirty thousand dollar bequest and other stories by mark twain this librivox recording is in the public domain advice to little girls good little girls ought not to make mouths at their teachers for every trifling offence this retaliation should only be resorted to under peculiarly aggravated circumstances if you have nothing but a rag doll stuffed with sawdust while one of your more fortunate little playmates has a costly china one you should treat her with a show of kindness nevertheless and you ought not to attempt to make a forcible swap with her unless your conscience would justify you in it and you know you are able to do it you ought never to take your little brother's chewing-gum away from him by main force it is better to rope him in with the promise of the first two dollars and a half you find floating down the river on a grindstone in the artless simplicity natural to this time of life he will regard it as a perfectly fair transaction in all ages of the world this eminently plausible fiction has lured the obtuse infant to financial ruin and disaster 
if at any time you find it necessary to correct your brother do not correct him with mud never on any account throw mud at him because it will spoil his clothes it is better to scald him a little for then you obtain desirable results you secure his immediate attention to the lessons you are inculcating and at the same time your hot water will have a tendency to move impurities from his person and possibly the skin in spots if your mother tells you to do a thing it is wrong to reply that you won't it is better and more becoming to intimate that you will do as she bids you and then afterward act quietly in the matter according to the dictates of your best judgment you should ever bear in mind that it is to your kind parents that you are indebted for your food and your nice bed and for your beautiful clothes and for the privilege of staying home from school when you let on that you are sick therefore you ought to respect their little prejudices and humor their little whims and put up with their little foibles until they get to crowding you too much good little girls always show marked deference for the aged you ought never to sass old people unless they sass you first post-mortem poetry written in 1870 in philadelphia they have a custom which it would be pleasant to see adopted throughout the land it is that of appending to published death notices a little verse or two of comforting poetry any one who is in the habit of reading the daily philadelphia ledger must frequently be touched by these plaintive tributes to extinguished worth in philadelphia the departure of a child is a circumstance which is not more surely followed by a burial than by the accustomed solacing poesy in the public ledger in that city death loses half its terror because the knowledge of its presence comes thus disguised in the sweet drapery of verse for instance in a late ledger i find the following i change the surname died hawks on the seventeenth inst clara the daughter of ephraim and laura hawks aged twenty-one months and two days that merry shout no more i hear no laughing child i see no little arms are around my neck no feet upon my knee no kisses drop upon my cheek these lips are sealed to me dear lord how could i give clara up to any but to thee a child thus mourned could not die wholly discontented from the ledger of the same date i make the following extract merely changing the surname as before becket on sunday morning nineteenth inst john p infant son of george and julia becket aged one year six months and fifteen days that merry shout no more i hear no laughing child i see no little arms are around my neck no feet upon my knee no kisses drop upon my cheek these lips are sealed to me dear lord how could i give johnny up to any but to thee the similarity of the emotion as produced in the mourners in these two instances is remarkably evidenced by the singular similarity of thought which they experienced and the surprising coincidence of language used by them to give it expression in the same journal of the same date i find the following surname suppressed as before wagner on the tenth inst ferguson g the son of william l and martha teresa wagner aged four weeks and one day 
that merry shout no more i hear no laughing child i see no little arms are round my neck no feet upon my knee no kisses drop upon my cheek these lips are sealed to me dear lord how could i give ferguson up to any but to thee it is strange what power the reiteration of an essentially poetical thought has upon one's feelings when we take up the ledger and read the poetry about little clara we feel an unaccountable depression of the spirits when we drift further down the column and read the poetry about little johnny the depression of spirits acquires an added emphasis and we experience tangible suffering when we saunter along down the column further still and read the poetry about little ferguson the word torture but vaguely suggests the anguish that rends us in the ledger same copy referred to above i find the following i alter surname as usual welch on the fifth inst mary c welch wife of william b welch and daughter of catherine and george w markland in the twenty-ninth year of her age a mother dear a mother kind has gone and left us all behind cease to weep for tears are vain mother dear is out of pain farewell husband children dear serve thy god with filial fear and meet me in the land above where all is peace and joy and love what could be sweeter than that no collection of salient facts without reduction to tabular form could be more succinctly stated than is done in the first stanza by the surviving relatives and no more concise and comprehensive program of farewells post-mortuary general orders etc could be framed in any form than is done in verse by deceased in the last stanza these things insensibly make us wiser and tenderer and better another extract ball on the morning of the fifteenth inst mary e daughter of john and sarah f ball tis sweet to rest in lively hope that when my change shall come angels will hover round my bed to waft my spirit home the following is apparently the customary form for heads of families burns on the twentieth inst michael burns aged forty years dearest father thou hast left us here thy loss we deeply feel but tis god that has bereft us he can all our sorrows heal funeral two o'clock sharp there is something very simple and pleasant about the following which in philadelphia seems to be the usual form for consumptives of long standing it deplores four distinct cases in the single copy of the ledger which lies on the memoranda editorial table bromley on the twenty-ninth inst of consumption philip bromley in the fiftieth year of his age affliction sore long time he bore physicians were in vain till god at last did hear him mourn and eased him of his pain that friend whom death from us has torn we did not think so soon to part an anxious care now sinks the thorn still deeper in our bleeding heart this beautiful creation loses nothing by repetition on the contrary the oftener one sees it in the ledger the more grand and awe-inspiring it seems with one more extract i will close doble on the fourth inst samuel Purville worthington doble aged four days our little sammy's gone his tiny spirits fled 
our little boy we loved so dear lies sleeping with the dead a tear within a father's eye a mother's aching heart can only tell the agony how hard it is to part could anything be more plaintive than that without requiring further concessions of grammar could anything be likely to do more toward reconciling deceased to circumstances and making him willing to go perhaps not the power of song can hardly be estimated there is an element about some poetry which is able to make even physical suffering and death cheerful things to contemplate and consummation to be desired this element is present in the mortuary poetry of philadelphia degree of development the custom i have been treating of is one that should be adopted in all the cities of the land it is said that once a man of small consequence died and the rev t k beecher was asked to preach the funeral sermon a man who abhors the louding of people either dead or alive except in dignified and simple language and then only for merits which they actually possessed or possess not merits which they merely ought to have possessed the friends of the deceased got up a stately funeral they must have had misgivings that the corpse might not be praised strongly enough for they prepared some manuscript headings and notes in which nothing was left unsaid on that subject that a fervid imagination and an unabridged dictionary could compile and these they handed to the minister as he entered the pulpit they were merely intended as suggestions and so the friends were filled with consternation when the minister stood in the pulpit and proceeded to read off the curious odds and ends in ghastly detail and in a loud voice and their consternation solidified to petrification when he paused at the end contemplated the multitude reflectively and then said impressively the man would be a fool who tried to add anything to that let us pray and with the same strict adhesion to truth it can be said that the man would be a fool who tried to add anything to the following transcendent obituary poem there is something so innocent so guileless so complacent so unearthly serene and self-satisfied about this peerless hogwash that the man must be made of stone who can read it without a dulcet ecstasy creeping along his backbone and quivering in his marrow there is no need to say that this poem is genuine and in earnest for its proofs are written all over its face an ingenious scribbler might imitate it after a fashion but shakespeare himself could not counterfeit it it is noticeable that the country editor who published it did not know that it was a treasure and the most perfect thing of its kind that the storehouses and museums of literature could show he did not dare to say no to the dread poet for such a poet must have been something of an apparition but he just shoveled it into his paper anywhere that came handy and felt ashamed and put that disgusted published by request over it and hoped that his subscribers would overlook it or not feel an impulse to read it published by request lines composed on the death of samuel and catherine belknap's children by m a glaze friends and neighbors all draw near and listen to what i have to say and never leave your children dear when they are small and go away but always think of that sad fate that happened in year of sixty-three four children with a house did burn think of their awful agony their mother she had gone away and left them there alone to stay the house took fire and down did burn before their mother did return 
their piteous cry the neighbors heard and then the cry of fire was given but ah before they could them reach their little spirits had flown to heaven their father he to war had gone and on the battlefield was slain and little did he think when he went away but what on earth they would meet again the neighbors often told his wife not to leave his children there unless she got some one to stay and of the little ones take care the oldest he was years not six and the youngest only eleven months old but often she had left them there alone as by the neighbors i have been told how can she bear to see the place where she so oft has left them there without a single one to look to them or of the little ones to take good care oh can she look upon the spot where under their little burnt bones lay but what she thinks she hears them say twas god had pity and took us on high and there may she kneel down and pray and ask god her to forgive and she may lead a different life while she on earth remains to live her husband and her children too god has took from pain and woe may she reform and mend her ways that she may also to them go and when it is god's holy will oh may she be prepared to meet her god and friends in peace and leave this world of care end of section thirty five this is section thirty six of the thirty thousand dollar bequest and other stories by mark twain this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE DANGER OF LYING IN BED The man in the ticket office said, "'Have an accident insurance ticket also?' "'No,' I said, after studying the matter over a little. "'No, I believe not. I am going to be traveling by rail all day today. However, tomorrow I don't travel. Give me one for tomorrow.' The man looked puzzled. He said, but it is for accident insurance and if you're going to travel by rail if i am going to travel by rail i shan't need it lying at home in bed is the thing i am afraid of i had been looking into this matter last year i traveled twenty thousand miles almost entirely by rail the year before i traveled over twenty-five thousand miles half by sea and half by rail and the year before that I traveled in the neighborhood of ten thousand miles, exclusively by rail. I suppose if I put in all the little odd journeys here and there, I may say I have traveled sixty thousand miles during the three years I have mentioned, and never had an accident. For a good while I said to myself every morning, Now I have escaped thus far, and so the chances are just that much increased that I shall catch it this time. I will be shrewd, and buy an accident ticket and to a dead moral certainty I drew a blank, and went to bed that night without a joint started or a bone splintered. I got tired of that sort of daily bother, and fell to buying accident tickets that were good for a month. I said to myself, a man can't buy thirty blanks in one bundle. But I was mistaken. There was never a prize in the lot. I could read of railway accidents every day. The newspaper atmosphere was foggy with them but somehow they never came my way. I found I had spent a good deal of money in the accident business, and had nothing to show for it. My suspicions were aroused, and I began to hunt around for somebody that had won in this lottery. I found plenty of people who had invested, 
but not an individual had ever had an accident or made a cent. I stopped buying accident tickets and went to ciphering. The result was astounding. The peril lay not in traveling, but in staying at home. I hunted up statistics, and was amazed to find that after all the glaring newspaper headlines concerning railroad disasters, less than three hundred people had really lost their lives by those disasters in the preceding twelve months. The Erie Road was set down as the most murderous in the list. It had killed forty-six, or twenty-six, I do not exactly remember which, but I know the number was double that of any other road. But the fact straightway suggested itself that the Erie was an immensely long road, and did more business than any other line in the country, so the double number of killed ceased to be matter for surprise. By further figuring, it appeared that between New York and Rochester the Erie ran eight passenger trains each way every day, sixteen altogether, and carried a daily average of six thousand persons, that is, about a million in six months, the population of New York City. Well, the Erie kills from thirteen to twenty-three persons of its million in six months, and in the same time thirteen thousand of New York's million die in their beds. My flesh crept, my hair stood on end. This is appalling, I said. The danger isn't in traveling by rail, but in trusting to those deadly beds. I will never sleep in a bed again. I had figured on considerably less than one-half the length of the Erie Road. It was plain that the entire road must transport at least eleven or twelve thousand people every day. There are many short roads running out of Boston that do fully half as much, a great many such roads. There are many roads scattered about the Union that do a prodigious passenger business. Therefore, it was fair to presume that an average of two thousand five hundred passengers a day for each road in the country would be about correct. There are 846 railway lines in our country, and 846 times 2,500 are 2,115,000. So the railways of America move more than two millions of people every day, 650 millions of people a year, without counting the Sundays. They do that, too, there is no question about it, though where they get the raw material is clear beyond the jurisdiction of my arithmetic. For I have hunted the census through and through, and I find that there are not that many people in the United States, by a matter of six hundred and ten millions at the very least. They must use some of the same people over again, likely. San Francisco is one-eighth as populous as New York. There are sixty deaths a week in the former, and five hundred a week in the latter, if they have luck. That is, three thousand one hundred and twenty deaths a year in San Francisco, and eight times as many in New York, say about twenty-five thousand or twenty-six thousand. The health of the two places is the same, so we will let it stand as a fair presumption that this will hold good all over the country, and that consequently twenty-five thousand out of every million of people we have must die every year. That amounts to one-fortieth of our total population. One million of us, then, die annually. Out of this million, ten or twelve thousand are stabbed, shot, drowned, hanged, poisoned, or meet a similarly violent death in some other popular way, such as perishing by kerosene lamp and hoop-skirt conflagrations, getting buried in coal-mines, 
falling off housetops, breaking through church or lecture-room floors, taking patent medicines or committing suicide in other forms. The Erie Railroad kills 23 to 46. The other 845 railroads kill an average of one-third of a man each, and the rest of that million, amounting in the aggregate to that appalling figure of 987,631 corpses, die naturally in their beds. You will excuse me from taking any more chances on those beds. The railroads are good enough for me, and my advice to all people is, don't stay at home any more than you can help. But when you have got to stay at home a while, buy a package of those insurance tickets and sit up nights. You cannot be too cautious. One can see now why I answered that ticket agent in the manner recorded at the top of this sketch. The moral of this composition is that thoughtless people grumble more than is fair about railroad management in the United States. When we consider that every day and night of the year full 14,000 railway trains of various kinds, freighted with life and armed with death, go thundering over the land, the marvel is not that they kill 300 human beings in a twelve-month, but that they do not kill 300 times 300. End of section 36 Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.